Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in trying to make the world a better place through business, Raj Jasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. It's our 21st episode on the 21st day of the 21st year of the 21st century. Wow. You always come so, up with the, the perfect angle <laughs> for whatever we're doing. I love it. That's great. Let's. That's not going to ever happen again, so let's make it <laughs> We'll have to make the best of it. Well, the good news is that today we've got a great guest, um, a longtime supporter of conscious capitalism and somebody who I respect tremendously as a person, as a friend, and for what he stands for, uh, Ben Richter. Now, let me introduce Ben. Ben is um, the CEO and founder of Bradford Logistics, and you've probably never heard of Bradford Logistics, but you probably touch them much, much more than you think you do, because they have actually reinvented a whole category of business within airport logistics. And Ben will talk about that a little bit. But if you travel through Heathrow or you travel through Houston or Detroit or almost any of the major airports in the United States, um, you've been touched by Ben and his organization. They're a little over 20 years old. They've been profitable since the beginning and grown every year since. Um, here he is, the one and only Ben Richter. Hi, Ben. Well, Tim, what a fantastic introduction and what a great way to celebrate yet another first, or I should say 21st. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, it's great that you both are uh, deliberating such dedicated effort to continue this proliferation of conscious capitalism, which I'm uh, such an amazing supporter of this movement. Well, thank you, Ben. And Maybe it would be helpful just to begin with a, a short sketch of Bradford Logistics and what you do, because it's not a household name. As, as no. You may win all of these awards in your industry and be a well-known force for good in your industry, but outside that niche, people haven't necessarily come across Bradford. So tell us a little bit about it. So there are some things, some services that are better felt than seen, and we happen to be one of them. So... You know, our typical security organizations, the great organizations like TSA, who provide this overview of security of people that go through airports, we provide uh, oversight for all the commercial goods that are consumed in the modern airport. So what most passengers don't realize is all of the things from like food and beverage and retail goods, custodial uh, operations goods, radar parts for the FAA and firearms for law enforcement, all come through a central distribution system that vets all of the vendors, that removes all the commercial goods from the uh, normal roadways that you would want to meander to get to an airport. And they're rerouted to this facility that then redistributes these goods in a very consolidated and systematic and timed way so that these mini economic engines for the cities they represented airports all of the logistics of the airport is managed in a very synchronous way that allows you as a traveling public uh, to be hassle-free and everything just 
appears to be exactly where it needs to be when it needs to be there. And that's kind of what we do. So you're the guys that make sure that when I go to the Starbucks at the airport, there's a Starbucks there that's got coffee for me. <laughs> sure. And along the way, ensuring that all of the goods and the people that are providing all of the logistics have been vetted and the materials exactly where it needs to be when it needs to be there. Oh, that's brilliant. That's really brilliant. So tell me a little bit about the history of the founding of the company and, and what got you into this in the beginning and, and why? Well, I think it's really important that um, most folks understand that there's just a natural journey that I think entrepreneurs go on in their discovery of how to make impact. And um, I think what has attracted me both to this uh, journey of entrepreneurism and has uh, uplifted me along the way is really the thought that business can be a tremendous force for good on the planet. And I'm not just a simple advocate of it. I think we have to reduce that to practice if it's going to make sense. And I don't think business is about what you get. It's about what you give. And I know there's um, a lot of fundamental business principles. And um, oftentimes we have this unbelievable uh, uh, preconceived notion that what business is about is following some very rigorous financial model to yield some financial result. And I'd love to tell you, I've never managed a business to a P&L. Uh, not that they don't exist and not that there isn't prudent financial structures in every business I've been involved in, but we focus on a number of other things, things that I will refer to as our Da Vinci code. Mm. And that has always yielded some amazing results. And I would tell you the kind of results that maybe are even better than, um, some of the proscripts that happen when you follow, quote unquote, a business financial model. Yeah. And I don't think it's any accident. And I think Raj has been in the business of measuring this in a number of uh, publications, including terms of endearment. Um, however, um, we've seen this play out for 20 years in what was my third uh, business thrift, but also one of the ones that's been uh, so enjoyable for me because of the legacy we're leaving as a result of being able to participate in this unique business. So fundamentally, um, part of this Da Vinci Code really is combining uh, a purposeful pursuit with an amazing culture and a highly defined vision for the future that brings people and stakeholders and principles uh, to produce results that have significant positive impact. Uh, as a result of executing some business model. And all this sounds very heuristic. Uh, for us, I can break it into really, you know, fundamental specifics about our business and bring to light how these kind of principles play into a 20-year big experiment gone right. Well, I love the fact that you're combining the fact that you know, sometimes when I talk with people, I say, listen, conscious capitalism isn't an excuse for not having a good business strategy and a good business model, you know? So we sometimes get lost in the, you know, some of the softer aspects of conscious capitalism when we forget that, you know, really, you still got to have a really good operations model. You've got to be able to execute. You got to have a good strategy and a vision for, for, for what that means in your industry. These things, your Da Vinci Code, then helps you move from being just a, a good organization to really being an extraordinary organization. And I think that's what's, uh, uh, that's what I'd love to explore a little bit more with you here today. Raj, how are you doing? Well, I, I do want to underline that point. Um, 
you know, having a sound business model is part of being a conscious business because that means you're going to be a good steward of the lives of your employees, right? And your suppliers and, and in general, because if your business falls apart, that's not being stakeholder oriented at all. So I think that is, uh, that is core to this and, uh, and a business model that actually leverages all of the other elements. It leverages the fact that we have strong stakeholder relationships, right? And we have this sense of purpose so that our strategy in fact is predicated on those elements as well. So I think it becomes a strong reinforcing system that we have stronger sustained competitive advantage as a result of all of those elements as well, which then feeds into a, a sound value proposition to begin with and enhances that over time. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I would love to maybe pick one or two parts of your Da Vinci code, Ben, you know, like what are one or two things that you're most proud of or, or really feel best about in terms of, your Da Vinci code that uh, has helped you get these extraordinary results in your business? So fundamentally, your business, this sound business model has to solve some prevailing problems. In our very first deployment, we were bringing out of the ground a brand new $2 billion airport terminal in Detroit, but the old Detroit airport, some 21 years ago, the Smith Terminal wasn't one of the worst customer service airports in the country. They had the unique and distinguished title of being number one in that category, dead last. You would have had a better chance of fighting with a vendor over a pallet of goods in the middle of a hallway that simultaneously had all the passengers passing through it. 267 freely roaming vehicles on an airfield with busy aircraft trying to get to and from gates. And it was absolutely non-optimal, and I'll leave it at that. And when Wayne County and at that time Northwest Airlines decided they were going to invest in a brand new build, a giant greenfield build, something that was had the lofty goal of setting a new standard for how aviation terminals should be built, they also wanted to reinvent logistics. And there was a wide netcast on models for how this might work. And we were fortuitous to win that beauty pageant. It eventually led to an eight-year contract and it started Bradford Airport Logistics. Uh. More importantly, we began to execute on Raj's sound business model, some thought leadership around how airports could be executed in the future. And while we're doing it, this the events of September 11th, completely changed our model. We started out as a, a technology model around logistics to change the efficiency by which we operated and solving these problems in a very unique customer service, super efficient. We took 263 vehicles and replaced them with three. We took $90 million of construction off the project to replace all this dock infrastructure with a centralized operation but then the events of September 11th, um, by happen chance, we also happen to be the single most secure way to get goods into a modern airport. And it didn't exist anywhere else in the world. This charter for changing the way aviation works became part of that sort of big mantra. And we had some people involved in this. And you could ask them at the time, what was your mission? And if they were telling you to move boxes around the airport, they got it wrong. If our line level leaders, and that's, you know, a lot of people call the 
last guy and there's all kinds of employee and sort of bad persona names. There are top leaders in the organization. And we believe in a mantra called leaders at all levels of the business. And if it's lip service or just writing on a wall, it means nothing. If I wake up every day and know I'm the bottom of the pyramid, as the CEO, my job is to uplift and support all of those around me. And the layers kind of go and the line level leader, that's it. And if that guy's going home or gal to their significant other and saying, what I do every day is I help this airport run great. And without me, there'd be no airport running. And then they got it. First of all, they've now carried the mission, the purposeful mission, along with them every day, along with a set of core values that we firmly believe in. And they were not discovered by yours truly. Those first set of employees, we went on a little mission to Mars is the discovery process by which you discover core values from within your net. Don't get me wrong. There's positive core values. Mm. And there's negative ones. We just don't put the negative ones on the wall and aspire to achieve them. We put a few positive ones that really, and for us, it was being knowledgeable about our industry and our customers. It was keeping all of our promises, not just the ones we make to ourselves, but especially the ones to stakeholders. And then it was innovating faster than anyone else in the industry in a, in, a, in a succinct way. Everyone carries that with them. And it doesn't mean that they don't show up in a unique and transparent way, Tim. And it isn't as if we don't value people for their own personal brands. Mm. But there is something about our filter, about how we hire for core values, that we fundamentally are looking for people who are looking for a purposeful pursuit. And then we develop folks from within to the extent that they say, please stop, I've I'm yeah. as far as you want to go. Um, otherwise, you can go as far as you'd like to go. Well, and I love that. I love that. And the part I love about it is that um, part of it is around how you develop people organically. But I know also that when you took over the business, a big, big win, one of the largest, most complex airports in the world at Heathrow, right? Um, you inherited a group, didn't you? I mean, you inherited people. And now the question was, okay. We didn't handpick these babies, you know, but they're now ours. And so how did that work when you brought your culture and that sense of strong sense of purpose and core values and you brought it to a group that might have been, I don't know, might have been a little cynical? <laughs> um, that cynical thing got a chuckle, didn't it? Yeah, probably, I got it. <laughs> probably, probably an understatement, but... Let me also say, you know, um, the United States and England are two countries separated by a common language. Mm. And uh, more importantly, there are cultural norms that were inherited in London. And it may be one of the great conscious capitalism and commercial experiments of its time, because both myself and my co-CEO, David Fitzgerald, pondered greatly and had lots of concern that if we're not using, as you said, our incredible filter to hire every employee with purposeful bounds and make sure that their core values are aligned with the organization, and we do this, we have such an unbelievable process for how we onboard people, including a values interview filter that's done at the executive management level for every hire in the organization. It's quite extraordinary. And we weren't going to do that in London. And as you said, we took over an existing operation and the big question was people with an existing culture and people with existing characteristics, can 
you have this and you weren't going to bring, there was no preconceived that we're going to just bring them over to our culture and they're going to be morphed into exactly, we were going to have a shared culture, a combined culture or something that was in between, you know, our absolute ideal. And we needed to bring folks along on a journey, but it was a big experiment of whether it can be done. And in London, it was even a little more challenging because some of the preconceived cultural norms, including alignment of incentives, their kind of KPIs, we, they were very kind of entitlement based. And generally speaking in London also, there still is this great divide between workplace and management and how they look at each other. There's just some preconceptions that have just been around for decades. And we were looking to disrupt that. Um, we wanted to have a different kind of relationship with our employees, one built on trust. And what we say is what we do and transparency. And it was, um, I remember my first talk with our employees um, and I specifically did a few things. Number one, they told me don't wear a tie in there, but I normally do, so I did. I wanted to be my authentic self. When I gave the presentation to some of our board members, there was one particular person who was probably my biggest critic, might've even um, made some defamatory comments around this, is really not gonna work in it. Mm -hmm. But I also think your biggest critics, uh, for being honest, it's the greatest feedback you can get and you should know going into it what are the risk profiles and yeah. then be able to look in the mirror and say, it's worth it. So I kind of went into this first talk and looked at line level leaders uh, across the board. And we literally had a couple hundred employees in London and I had to tell them the story of where we wanted to go. And I started off by talking about mission, vision, values, our management team. And if you want to bore to death a bunch of London line level leaders, that's where you start. And I knew it would take them there. And I also kind of knew that I might ruffle a few feathers being up there, you know, all tie driven and suited up and they're not. But along the way, I told them that our employees in the US, we had a number of discussions amongst our facilities at the time. And they told me I was supposed to charter a 747, bring them all over there and let our employees talk to their employees at an employee level. And therefore they'd really understand our culture and know that we were authentic and virtuous and really trying to bring them along a great journey. And I told them that summarily got rejected due to financial reasons, but I am here. And what I did do is we sent uh, camera crews to seven facilities with really no preconceived agenda. And they got to talk to the camera and we played a video for the guys in the seats. Hmm. And they went from back in the chairs with their arms crossed and within three minutes, leaning forward, chuckling a little bit and listening to real, and you know, I think most of the folks, if they had said just to themselves, and I suspect this is going through their head, if any of this is true, mm. this could be really cool. This could be a great place to work. And what is this about? We get to own the culture. So David Fitzgerald likes to say, you're either adding to or taking away from our culture at every moment. Mm. And you get to decide what the culture of the organization looks like. We don't own it. We collectively own it. Yeah. And so everyone on we on board in this direction and they got to see hey i can own our own culture and we can have something really fun and engaging and purposeful and different mm -hmm. than what we have today and over the course and i would tell you it was a three-year multi-year journey tim you don't earn respect and trust is built one promise kept at a time 
But in the course of three years, we eventually got to a place of peril where we were altering our union contract to mm -hmm. align our KPIs with the contract. And there were those who thought we're trying to take away their bonus because before it's kind of an entitlement. You're just going to get a jack. Yeah. And here make it real. But we can't achieve what we're promising to the customer unless everyone's pulling on the same rope. And it came to a don't blink moment. Like we're going to either have an industrial action or we're going to get together. And they, it was folks from within told their own union representatives, we believe these guys. We've seen three years of nothing but authenticity. And sometimes that's what it takes. And in London, it was that for the experiment. And then post that, we have gone in KPIs beyond anywhere. Even London and ourselves would believe achievable. It's probably the finest run benchmark operation and the largest of its kind in the world. And it's super system driven. And the leaders we have there are super appreciated. I just want to let you know, and it's not normal and nor was it our desire, but I can't make it through our operation without a high five on the floor of the warehouse. And that just doesn't happen in London. And uh, they've got me to reduce my tie wearing. And uh, I have spent <laughs> just a lot of time listening to what needs to happen. Like yeah. I will get all way hijacked and they'll tell me how to be CEO. And I, I let that happen every day of the week. I love it. I love it. I also think it's really unique that your co-CEO, if I recall right, came up from the HR organization side of things. And well, I think ori originally, originally he was an ops guy and What's interesting about FedEx uh, is that the vast majority of their executive team came as either a driver or a line sorter or something that's, and they developed from within. And David went through the ranks of an operations guy and then a top and then a SWAT team fellow, but was eventually invited to HR and helped build their fabled Leadership Development Institute and uh, was really at a time where they were the fastest in the world, zero to a billion bucks in revenue before the dot-com era. It's an extraordinary journey. So he yeah. brings a lot of that with him. Yeah. Well, that, that London story is terrific, you know, and I think it illustrates some uh, generalizable points. It reminds me of uh, Bob Chapman and what he did at Barry Miller, where he literally has acquired 120 uh, companies, all of them with some kind of toxic uh, culture with a lot of pain and uh, dysfunction in the past and a lot of hostility and suspicion. And because he brought sort of a universe, a, a culture that's based on universal human values, right? Everybody wants respect and dignity and a sense of safety and being cared for. And, and when you do that and you build trust and, and people feel cared for, then you can hold them accountable and, uh, and uh, set high expectations. So I think there's, it is a culture that if you're moving them towards that, it sort of almost doesn't matter where they came from because that is something pretty much everybody uh, aspires to move towards. I think this is a great illustration outside of Barry Wayman of, uh, of that being true. Uh, one of the things I've been reading uh, just recently, uh, in fact, this morning, uh, Unilever has just announced that uh, they are by 2030, going to require that all of their suppliers pay their employees a living wage. And Unilever has already made that commitment, already is doing it, I believe. In 190 countries, they define a living wage based upon low, local uh, cost of living, but that includes food and housing and education and healthcare and transport and clothing and a buffer, you know, a margin to save in the event of something happening. 
I wanted to get your thoughts on that. That's just fresh on my mind. As a CEO, how does that land with you when you talk about the people at the front line and how motivated they are, inspired they are, and purpose-driven they are? What about this idea, which if you think about the biggest crises and threats that we face, it's, to me, it's climate change and it's in, uh, uh, social inequality. So I'll, I'll try to address it in brevity, but it's um, quite an interesting topic. And when we first arrived in London, we also, in our U.S. operations, we don't have any temporary labor. And although in London we did have a significant temporary labor, there were some things about the temporary labor I really didn't understand, Raj, at, at first glance. Uh, Normally, temporary means pretty much you can bring them in, and, but it's done in, uh, for seasonality in this business because we have big things that happen in Europe. In the month of August, everyone travels, and then the holiday peak is a very different thing. And so having some variability in an operation that runs 24-7, 365, supporting one of the largest engines in the world needed that. So we accepted that going in. What I didn't know and I learned, we had town halls. And in one town hall, I had um, one employee, uh, a gentleman who literally started crying in the middle of my town hall. And what he was telling me is I do the exact same job as a guy with a permanent position. And what I get to take home after this intermediary, the temporary organization is a fraction of this guy and I'm doing the same job, Mr. Richter. And, um, you know, I'd love to tell you uh, that that didn't move me. It did. I, you know, first of all, Tim knows me well enough to know that's exactly the kind of thing that moves me. And when I looked that man in the eye, I said, I'm going to solve this problem. Uh, we began to come up with a program that moved people from temp to permanent. We also work with one of the most exceptional management teams in the world, London's um, executive management team um, has been promoting a London living wage and they had something prior to the current debacle we're in. We were on our way to what we called Heathrow 2.0 and we were leading the charge in Heathrow, not just um, on London living wage, but so many other paying your vendors timely. Uh, There's a long uh, list of things that you would call came right out of the playbook of conscious capitalism and Heathrow may not know it, but they're living the dream. And that's a purposeful thing. Now, obviously when we lost 20% of passenger employments, we thought the world was ending. And then we realized the world really was ending when we were at 95% of passenger employments evaporate uh, from, you know, we're in a, this is a biblical, this is apocalyptical, this period we're in now yet we all fundamentally know how resilient aviation will be, and we're all there to bring everyone back into the chairs and ultimately get back on Heathrow 2.0 and make that happen. So Raj, emphatically, I think it's the right thing to do. It reads on getting there is easier said than done. It requires uh, some patience. It requires forethought. So we created a plan that basically uh, gave people a path from temporary to permanent. And then but had to convince our stakeholder that having more permanent positions was important. And then we had to come up with a plan where we ensured that even though they were temporary, they really were, except for these various periods, uh, they would 
really kind of permanent employees just called temporary. And we didn't, although we didn't get an economic advantage, they got an economic disadvantage. And so we basically tried to minimize our need for during peak periods of that resource by doing all kinds of super smart stuff, including building systems and infrastructure for better predictive measures. And ultimately, I think we solved 70% of that problem. Uh, generally speaking, we couldn't take everything out of the business and we did need uh, to be able to have certain flex, but the problem changed systemically. And more importantly, everyone in our organization, it was not my mission. The minute it became a mantra of our group, the way line level leaders work, they owned it. And so they came up with proposals. They, and the model we ended up on was a collective model of everyone's vision of what's the best we can do and still have a resilient uh, infrastructure that can support the needs of the business. But Raj, um, nothing gave me more joy than uh, being able to look some of these folks and, and we uplifted their condition in life. And they really felt like I'm, as, I'm an equal to everyone else on the team. And it was a, just a hugely beneficial thing and something I think we can look back in legacies and that was done right. I also want you to know there was one other thing that came out of some great concepting with employees, which is uh, Tim loves our employee service excellence coins. And I wanted to share a little bit about a way that you can elevate line level leaders and really make them special. And along the way, do some really unique things with culture and relationship. And so we developed a coin that you don't give to the employee, you give it to all the key stakeholders. So if you're a manager of like a retail enterprise at the airport or the CEO of Heathrow, and we do this domestically in the U.S. And uh, I think just because Tim's sitting in London, I seem to be my <laughs> focusing on our London operation for Tim's benefit. And he knows the story well. But Huffington wrote about it. It was really highly acclaimed. But I really want to get to the crux of why it's special. It's not just another employee engagement thing. I think it's a way to elevate line level leaders and make their prominence and importance. And uh, the thing that when we say they're a leader, this is why. What happens is we give all these stakeholders coins in London. We distribute, I think, 300 of them a year. And it's one year and every coin serialized. And so the CEO is carrying in his pocket. He's got one charge. You know, if you see someone doing something exceptionally right, pause them, tell them why, and then hand them this. Now, what uniquely happens? How many times in years prior would that CEO ever stop? To, he didn't have a reason. And then more importantly, if you're the employee and you can stop, and whether it's the CEO or the manager of the, um, you know, pink uh, men's clothing store or the, you know, particular cafe, it's really exceptional that you're paused. A member of your client or stakeholder team then tells you, I so appreciate you for this and then hands you something. That exchange, if you can imagine the electricity that, flows through two human bodies when you give something and you receive something for just doing what you think is your normal purposeful mission and somebody calls you, but they have a relationship at that moment and never had it before. So my line level leader, I didn't meet the CEO that year, but he did. Hmm. And he had a hallway meeting that was, and guaranteed, he goes back, the first thing he does is tell supervisor this, and when they look up serial number 165 and they realize it's, oh my word, this was the chief operating officer of Ethro, or this was the head chef of Peculiar Cafe. 
you know, that's meaningful. Now, we end up calling it, asking in the story, recording it, and then proliferating the story to elevate the employee and to provide examples of what are great mission-focused things you can do to stakeholders. And we get hundreds of them a year, and we elevate it. Now, what do you do next year? And it's really, Raj, uh, one of this prolific, distributed, organic ways to make the words on the wall come out, make them real. And it's just one of hundreds of things that we've experimented with that kind of what I say carries the torch for making our people the most intrinsic center part about what we do every day. Well, I love that because I think it, it, it makes a lot of points about appreciation and people's energy and everything else, but it's also fueled a lot of innovation for your business. Because when people are passionate, I love the way you say, you know, we push a lot of responsibility down to the front line to find ways to innovate. And you've won awards for innovation because of this, you know, positive cycle you've gotten into of appreciation and caring and passion and understanding what the business is about. And then the, combining that and unleashing that as a power in the organization. Say a little bit more about, about that. So innovation um, cannot originate from um, your most likely set. You know, it doesn't, we don't invent it in Houston. Ultimately, we have to be just incredible listeners. And um, the best ideas in the organization come, as Tim, you alluded to, comes right from the front line of people touching a customer. So we have uh, this amazing interface and everything we do is a system called AMIS or Airport Material Intelligence System. But this acronym uh, for a system, I'd love to tell you, we designed it. We came up with these, uh, the software guys. And truly what it was is every stakeholder meeting, every commentary that came back, it was user-inspired software. It's, um, we have the most incredible, I mean, there's millions of lines of code in it. You know, it helps us operate at incredible levels. It's a predictive system. It's extraordinary uh, KPIs. And if you can imagine a business where any anomaly that could occur uh, warns you well before you fail, we never see the sharp end of a contract or a regulatory problem because we have this incredible infrastructure. I'd love to tell you, we architect, we at this executive level, it really came from just a thousand interfaces with both stakeholders and our employees and then listening. Uh, much of the features and functions in the code are named after employees. Uh, we, yeah, you know, and it's extraordinary. And so I think you're getting at something that every time you have one of these touch points, every time you have, hey, this was a, it's another way to reinvent yourself. And if one of your core values is uh, innovation faster than anyone else in the industry, that's a tough challenge. And if it's just going to be words on a wall, that's where it stays. If you're going to make that happen, then you've got to have, you've got to use the two ears you were given and everyone's a listener and everyone's a creative genius. And we turn that, as you know, into innovation fuel. Well, Ben, we always like to learn about the journeys of the uh, conscious leaders we get a chance to uh, speak with here. Uh, you know, people are, uh, brought up in a certain way or they have certain influences from their parents or from a mentor? Like what made you into the kind of leader uh, that you are and, and who thinks the way that you do? There, there are. And Raj, I first want to start out with some basic beliefs that have been formulated over decades 
but I've analyzed the same question, but for myself. Um, and uh, there is a fundamental belief that I believe every human is basically born with the same human potential. And barring some medical or physical abnormality, which I think accentuates, you know, skills that you would never know you otherwise had, uh, generally speaking, everyone can get to where you are. And so your job on planet Earth during the time we have the luxury of breathing breaths is to uplift everyone around you and to see if you can assist them in some small way on their journey of enlightenment. And generally speaking, that's where everything starts for me. And where did that come from? Great. So I got to start with a dad who gave before he got uh, every step of the way. And uh, he had, um, when he married, he married a, um, a woman who already had four children and then mm. took on two more. And um, I just want you to know he had that kind of heart. And he wasn't um, uh, a soft-willed individual. He was uh, brilliant and um, uh, strong-willed, but at the same rate, had a heart with no end. And mm. I learned a lot, not just necessarily from words, but more from behaviors and how uh, he interfaced with people and what he was willing to give to help others. And it was just an extraordinary example. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly along the journey, I think what parents try to do is to put people and influence you in your life. And um, I believe kids kind of grow up and every once in a while, the camera lens goes off. And uh, in a couple of circumstances, individuals my father knew became mentors of mine because the camera lens went off. And uh, along the way, there's countless I can remember. And then the journey through college, uh, you know, there are kids who go to school and, you know, they want to get the piece of paper and the pedigree and move on. I wanted to get the learning. Like for me, I have a love of learning that has no, I can't seem to quench that thirst. Mm -hmm. I think Tim knows me well enough to know the uh, inquisition part of my skill base is strong. <laughs> and, I ask intriguing questions. It happens to be a parenting style. I used to have this special chair in the room in my home, which uh, I refer to as the listening chair mm -hmm. and where kids are supposed to be able to come in and, you know, talk about whatever they want with no, you know, opinion. And uh, my kids commonly refer to it as the talking chair because they can't get me to shut up once they <laughs> give me an opportunity to respond. I wish it didn't feel that way to them, but it's, you, you got to accept uh, feedback, honest feedback. But along the way in the entrepreneurial world, in the business world, there's been some significant influences. I think Vern Harnish and his teachings and uh, my going through this gathering of Titans and birthing of giants programs, first with EO and then uh, my transition to YPO and, and this network of like-minded folks, and especially the ones who have cultivated that with a sense of purpose and passion and have really learned that this journey is all about learn. And at some point you get the privilege to earn and bring others along the journey. And then at some point you go to return, which is where you get back. And uh, I don't think it's just a fine line, but that's the transition. And if you're doing it right, at some point you've, stop climbing the mountain and you teach people how to climb. Mm. And I'm on that journey and I'm just, I have loved every second of it and every phase of it. Then I always think of you as this um, very big hearted man. So you have a big heart. You're very generous with your time and your energy. Um, and at the same time, you're also very determined, very focused, very disciplined. And 
it's a really interesting combination to be big hearted and focused and disciplined and really action oriented. And I love that combination about you. Um, but tell me a little bit about where that big heart came from. I mean, that's a big heart you've got and it hasn't been an easy journey for you. I know at times. So tell us about that heart. Where, where does that big heartedness come from? Um, there is um, not one thing, Tim, that I think I'm genetically predisposed. Uh, I'll give you one of the frailties. Um, somewhere in my wiring is, um, and I believe because people showed up in my life and gave me an opportunity to know that I was more than I thought I could be. And every time that happened for me, I just wanted everyone else to experience that and how to play that forward became sort of a logical investigation for me in my young life. And once I knew that I could inspire others to, to have a healthy disbelief in the impossible and to take steps that they didn't think they could take and to challenge themselves in unique ways and to see them blossom was just a gift. I could not um, comprehend. I had a dear friend Raj and, and, my best friends are the ones who have challenged me most heartedly, have given me room for pause, and sometimes have said things to me that otherwise I would say you might not think a friend says that. So I had a particular friend who is a, a well-known business speaker, and one day I was telling him the kind of people I like to align myself to. And I said, I like to align myself to the people who have a natural tendency to want to give before they get. And he said, well, you don't know the first thing about giving, Ben. And I thought to myself, oh, my word, this is a dear friend. Mm. <laughs> and of course, when I get a little upset or a little shaken, I usually say, with, due with all due respect, if you hear that, <laughs> you know I'm on it. <laughs> I said, with all due respect, and this guy is an American Indian. And I said, uh, walking bear, could you please describe for me why uh, you think this? And he said, well... In our culture, in the culture of American Indian, um, this notion of giving is central. And there's some fundamental um, notions about this that you and your culture just can't possibly understand and you're not predestined uh, to think and feel in this way. And I said, you, you know, I'm a smart guy. You're going to have to explain this a little bit further. And he asked me to call out the three things that somebody in his tribe might do that would be act, uh, consider of uh, great giving to the other members of the tribe. And so, you know, I threw out, you know, hunt, and that wasn't it, give your life, that wasn't even close. Uh, I said, to, you know, to, uh, to foster children and teach them that, you know, I got three exes and in family feud, you know, I was, so I said, please tell me. And he said, it's doing something for the dead. Mm. And I asked him why. And he said, because they can't possibly do anything back. And as soon as you learn the notion that when you give, it should have no expectation and you live in a transaction world. And even the notion of you seeing somebody do something great after you've helped them across the you know, parapet, you know, that's not true giving. And it dawned on me that he was teaching me a super valuable lesson. And although I will have you know, I have not reached this ninja state, uh, I aspire every time I give to do that with a sense of nobility and a sense of, I don't expect something in return. So tell me, you know, talking about challenges, um, on your journey of building a conscious business, um, sure. 
what have you found to be the one or two points that were really critical to the conscious capitalism part of your business? Um, getting the culture, getting the culture map right, number one, yeah. and adopting a philosophy around servant leadership that has to permeate with everyone. And uh, they were not instinctively embedded in my um, entrepreneurial rulebook. I discovered it through um, amazing people, amazing journey, amazing places, and a ton of micro failures. Mm. So uh, first and foremost, this purpose, mission, vision, values cannot be understated. And the process of developing those doesn't happen overnight. You don't walk into a room, come yeah. out with them, and you just author them. Some of them are discovered from your team. Some of them you do go through some thought transition. I know you both uh, clearly understand how vitally important it is and the journey that must go on to create that aligned culture. But I think organizations take it for granted and they think they can emerge from a boardroom and create the edict and then tell people to follow it. And it just doesn't work that way. It's got to be embedded yeah. in every part that comes into the organization from the moment you're hired to every single thing you're doing every day. And you either have people who are all bought in or you have detractors and there's yeah. no in between. You're adding to or taking away from that culture at every moment. And yeah. we really want to invite people to this great family we've developed that are really engaged, that want to be involved in an extraordinary interchange. Uh, I like to think that people, you know, some of their funnest parts of their day happen right here. Yeah. And when they go, they're uplifting others around them. And I also would love to feel like when somebody comes home and they walk through the threshold of their door, they can take off their business and be the best dad and the best mom and the best partner and the best whatever they want to be and then come with their authentic self the next day and be that person again and if we're doing any of that even close to the way i just described it we're doing a lot of good i love it i love it so when was that moment when did you first do that what what stage of the business did you say okay all right, team, let's get together. We're going to articulate our, our purpose, our vision, and our mission, and we're going to drive that into the culture. What, what was that, and, and what drove that moment? So really, uh, the teachings of Vern Harnish and Rockefeller Habits drove, drove this notion of core values that was really the start of discovery into how vitally important culture is in a successful business. And then um, using that as a filter to drive greater vision, more positive intentions, higher definition visions down from project level work to the infrastructure of the entire organization. And I believe I was still developing uh, our sense and we wrote, rewrote our purpose during our early years of conscious capitalism. And it was this notion that businesses need a higher pursuit as much as the individuals do. And that the purpose of business cannot just be a P and L. No. And it can't just be stakeholder value. And <laughs> it just can't. And, it, and that honestly didn't excite me. So initially, the things that excited me about entrepreneurism was just the fascination of creating and, you know, building teams. And it was very altruistic. And eventually, it became super purposeful. Like, we can do a lot more with business than we thought we could. We can enrich people's lives. We can make differences to entire industries. We yeah. can be disruptive and shake things up. And all of that was, uh, has been a fascinating journey and along the way, um, and, and something that's teachable. Well, you made an interesting observation there. You said it's not just about creating stakeholder value, right? Although that's a big thing for conscious capitalism. It's not about shareholders, it's about all stakeholders. But yeah. you're saying it's going beyond stakeholder value to some sense of uniting purpose. 
So there's value, then there's also being part of something greater for all of the stakeholders. No, absolutely. It's sort of like glue, Raj. It's, and that's why there has to be more than one pillar. And uh, generally speaking, I think we, we start with this underlying great purpose and we build this uh, intriguing culture and then we do things together and it germinates into other people and all stakeholders wanting to join. And we have something in our organization we've developed called the hierarchy of satisfaction. And I kind of want to let you know a little bit how it works. And it might sound contrived, but it actually has a, 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 it's a fundamental observation, but it's happened with us so many times that it's no longer a coincidence. And we had to give it a name and give it a process. Otherwise, we couldn't describe it to others. But the notion that a client pays you to do a job is the lowest form of appreciation in our hierarchy. Uh, you got paid. Great. And then a lot of organizations want awards. And I know, Tim, you said your organization, your people have gotten all kinds of awards. That's great, but that's just the next step. When organizations and people start mimicking what you do, that's a level higher. They look at your methods. They look at your meaning. Then at some point, they start advocating you. One of the interesting things, Ben, is when you've created a great culture and you're really values and purpose driven and you're growing really fast, which is all good news, right? Um, At some point, there comes this point where you've got to sort of say, I need growth capital. And I've now got to be thinking about who are my investors going to be and how's that going to change our mission, vision, or even our culture when we start to do that. So I know you recently went through that process and, you know, so tell us a little bit about how did that process feel and, you know, how's it working? So I have a good story with a great outcome. And uh, obviously in my world of uh, fellow entrepreneurs and leaders, the vast majority of the stories do not match mine. So to the extent I can give some guidance, Uh, First and foremost, you might expect somewhere in the process of finding uh, a capital partner, uh, there was going to be a culture conversation. Mm. Now, I think my investment banker may not have known that up front, and I think I scared him at one point pretty significantly. And I'll try to summarize this for brevity, because I know this isn't supposed to be a two-hour podcast. (laughs) But... um, I need you to know, I first went out and we found um, a really extraordinary investment banking group to represent us who understood us at a deep level. And I would have you know, Tim, I'm, it's very uncomfortable for me to allow someone to be our spokesperson. Mm. And you know, I've refined my skill over 20 years and to somebody to step in and, well, there's a gentleman, his name is John Mack. He heads up the security infrastructure side of uh, Imperial Capital out of LA and he was that guy. And uh, because he was a former CEO and because he walked in these shoes and I will have, you know, I sat in meetings where he was informatively describing who we are and what we are. And I said, it could not be better than that. And it wouldn't have been better if I did it. Wow. And if you can feed that, that's great. Now at the same rate, John and I, when we agreed to disagree and it was on the side of the investment banking knowledge he had accumulated over his multi-decade, I, I acquiesced mm. except for a few times. And I'd like to talk about one of them. Yeah. It came to culture and how we were going to measure the prospects. First and foremost, I think one of the great assets we had is we had a global growth initiative that was a nice to have, but not 
have to have. Mm. And at any point in time, I could have said, no, thank you, and continue on our great journey. And it's great, and we don't need it. Now, if I want to conquer the globe, it was necessary. And, of course, we have great high-definition visions around a global company. So, And we also wanted to find an organization with some international exposure, a team that really was there to help, not hurt, didn't treat us as a number, and there were a whole bunch of other things. And, of course, all of this are great aspirations for most people going through. And we're looking, this is a minority equity investment, so it's a little different. Okay. Um, the folks who really were engaged with us, so we said, had a hot number of highly engaged potential investors. And when we were done, we had about eight finalists. And of the eight finalists, I was told one day to whittle it in half. And mm. I was supposed to call all eight, tell four of them that they would continue to phase two and four would continue not. And um, uh, I thought I fired four and hired four. And I did this in a very graceful Ben way. And uh, the very next day, the four that were rejected all put new offers in. <laughs> and uh, of course, I got a call from John Matt. He goes, I'm going to have to do this now. <laughs> you, don't, you didn't do it right. <laughs> and lo and behold, we got through that first phase. But the second phase, when we were down to final finalists, um, I told John I wanted to do something called a reverse RFP. He first said, what's that? I said, we've spent months now pitching our wares to potential investors, and they've now told us in the form of a bid they want to play. I said, I want to hold them to all the promises they made. I got people. Here's how I'm going to treat you. This is the reporting requirements. Here's the culture that we represent. Here are the people that will be on your board. And uh, I came up with a list of 16 highly detailed questions that uh, I was going to rank them on. And, uh, and it included deep questions around purpose and culture and people and exactly what was the reporting requirement? How do you handle things when things are not and it going up, they're going down? Give me your five customers that you actually hired and give me five you rejected. I want to talk to those two. And it was just, it was very probing. And so John was like, okay, that sounds interesting. We'll do that. He said, how much credence are you going to give for all this culture stuff? Like in the scorecard, because we're evaluating a financial bid that they just gave us. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to 50%. And he just about, there was a little bit possible, some profanity. And he said, you're out of your blank, blank mind. And I said, I very well may be, but that's what we need to do. And we did that. We, um, so everyone presented a 30-minute session. They did a full formal report to us. We evaluated that. And um, our third highest bidder, financially, mm -hmm. lowest bidder financially, um, was our selected um, partner. 200-year firm, um, Every single partner of this particular firm uh, is individually and severably liable for the entire company. It, it doesn't exist anymore in our universe. Yeah. Uh, this uh, firm has um, an extraordinary team of people who passionately care about what they do, their alignment of culture, their uh, process for portfolio. Uh, and then all of the promises they made in the pitch were reiterated in very special ways in their reverse RFP. But more importantly, now I'm going in on two years with this organization, every single word, mm. every single promise yeah. and all of the behaviors associated with them. And mind you, we are not going through a, a, a difficult time. Now we're going yeah. through an extraordinary trying time 
As I said, when we were 20% passenger employment loss in March, the world was ending for aviation. We went down to 95% loss in, in London now, you know, with it closed down again. You know, this is biblical, apocalyptical. This is, this is the, and if you want to figure out how a partner behaves, mm. don't walk down a downhill sunny road with them, walk through a firestorm. And you'll figure out whether you've got a partner. That, and I will have you know, some of the other partners, had we picked them, they'd be picking us apart. They'd yeah. be paralyzed and scared. They'd be yeah. in a place where they're worried about. And we've gone on offense. We were the first to reach out and want to help airports, even before things never held our hand out. What can we do to help you? But it almost required us putting up capital to do that in a time where you should be rolling it all back. Right. And I think it's been our saving grace. I also think this particular partner, Brown Brothers Harriman, leaned in every mm -hmm. step of the way and has been an extraordinary partner. And if any of this is helpful, as people go through that journey of picking, just you cannot be short-sighted. No. Well, Ben, what I love about that is that, you know, we say it, but you're just, you just gave a great example of it, which is, you know, you get the investors you deserve. And That's right. you know you don't work to get that relationship, then you're going to get something else. And I That's think right. you've illustrated in a beautiful way the intensity and the purpose that you brought to finding the right investor, even if it wasn't necessarily maximizing your financial benefit, it optimized uh, an important element of your business for you. And I think it's just a great example. Yeah. So, so you said you're a perpetual learner, and which is wonderful. That's one of the great qualities of conscious leaders, I think, the growth mindset. So what's inspiring you? Is anything you're reading or learning currently? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. First of all, I've, I've been a little bit of a leadership buff. Um, you know, growing and learning requires sometimes, as you know, the most formidable way to be a student is to become a teacher. And so along this journey, I've done some very interesting work in the realm of leadership um, and heading up a few leadership programs, both first internally in our company and then externally. The uh, uh, largest law enforcement agency in Texas happens to be the third largest sheriff's department in the United States. I have developed a 10-year leadership program that has now graduated 200 amazing people on an unbelievable journey of self-development. And uh, in an era where um, policing is being questioned, the folks here are not having the same sort of issues elsewhere. And more importantly, a lot of folks are, are leaving this because it used to be uh, a vocation where, you know, when I grow up, I want to be an astronaut or a policeman or a teacher and policemen may be falling far from the list. So the folks who are staying are, you know, is this, is this what I want to continue in my journey? And the, the message I like to tell the folks who are still sitting in those seats is if you vacate them and you being one of the, the folks who really get it and understand you're going to, first of all, by staying here, you're going to be one of the ones to say, we remember when we were challenged the most and we were needed the most to make a social difference. And the ones who are great really need to stay there and continue doing that journey. And one of my great friends and mentors and uh, fellow YPO or Warren Rustan has just released an amazing book on leadership. He's taken the culmination of, and I can't begin to tell you how many people he's helped and what an influence he's been on my life, but this latest culmination of the book that he has produced is priceless. And uh, it's just about to be released from the press. So Ben, let me just check and make sure I got that right. Um, it's Warren Rustin and the book is The Leader Within Us, which I believe was just published in January. Warren Rustand. 
and uh, it, it, Tim and extraordinary. He was the um, former scheduling chief for President Gerald Ford, has sat on some 50 uh, boards, some of them very prominent. He's been the CEO of a number of uh, NYSE uh, entities, but more importantly, has been an advocate and uh, an uplifting influence to entrepreneurs uh, and has spent the vast majority of his return years working with younger entrepreneurs and helping them. And um, Warren and I uh, were involved in a, uh, uh, in a project in Washington, D.C. Um, that was about connecting entrepreneurs to public policy leaders uh, in a really special way. And that's where I originally met Warren. And then uh, he uh, adopted uh, the younger entrepreneurs in EO and has been a resource for them like no other. Ben, this has been an incredible story. Thank you so much for your generosity and sharing it. You've created a great organization. It's been wonderful to have you. Um, and thank you all to our listeners for joining us this week. And whatever channel you're listening on, please feel free to hit that little subscribe button that's there. And if you have any comments or thoughts you'd like to get back to us on, then please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com and you can leave a, a note there for Raj or I. And Raj, if they want to know more about that incredibly important topic, conscious capitalism, where should they go? They can go to ConsciousCapitalism.org and sign up and be part of the community and uh, join a local chapter if there is one, or they can help start one if there isn't. Thank you, Ben. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Great stuff. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Ben. My, abs my absolute pleasure, gentlemen. And as you know, the opportunity to uh, give back, be an example for others, and more importantly, a resource for folks who are on the journey uh, is part of my personal purpose. And so thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm so grateful.